0: I'm Adrian Sykes, and welcome to episode seven of Did You Know Pioneers, the podcast dedicated to telling the stories of the executives of color who have led the way in the UK music business. Today is part one of a two-part conversation with Keith harris OBE, one of the true titans in the UK music business. Keith has had an amazing career to date, and just like all my guests, I wanted to know why he chose the music business.
1: The short answer is, I I suppose I didn't really choose the music business. I chose pop music and I ended up choosing the music business because I wasn't good enough to be a musician. There's a lot in that answer
0: already that we're going to have to explore as we go. And I have to say, for those that may not have come across Keith or may not know him, his history is incredible, his legacy. So take us back a little bit and tell us about the young Keith Harris and how you found your love of music.
1: I suppose going back, my mother was, wasn't was musical, but loved to play music and loved to play the pop records of the day, which for almost all the listeners on this uh, will be totally unknown because we're talking, you know, the early to mid-1950s. Things like The Runaway Train, Please Mr. Porter, and How Much Is That Doggy In The Window, mostly what I would call novelty records. One of the first songs that I remember just liking as a pop song was a song called Singing the Blues. Now, the version that I heard was by a British artist called Tommy Steele, who is still around. I think he still does uh, theatre. But the original version of that song was by an artist called Guy Mitchell. And, I, yeah, I really liked the song. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't know why. It just sort of struck a chord with me. I'm really interested to find out what if there was any music
0: of our culture played in and around you at that particular point. Were you aware of that music
1: or the things that were being brought, brought over from, from back home? Or the short answer is, no, I wasn't. I was aware of the songs, but most of the time I was unaware that the pop songs that I was hearing were originally black records, which had been made into pop covers because that, that's what used to happen then in the 50s and 60s. I, would, I was hearing, like I said, I was hearing the 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 Tommy Steele version of Singing the Blues rather than the Guy Mitchell version, right? And I know my mum had, you know, in terms of, of, you know, black music and black artists, my mum used to love people like Satchmo, you know, Louis Armstrong, uh, or, or Louis Armstrong, to give him his correct name. We called him Louis because we were from here. And so obviously I saw him and I, and I liked him, but certainly at that time, you know, I'd be lying if I said that I was more prone to listen to black music artists than I was to the, the white pop artists, which was the environment that I grew up in. So your father's a surgeon in Whitehaven in Cumbria.
0: A son has a real affinity and love of music. What did um, Mr. and Mrs. Harris to expect their son to be doing for, as a career?
1: I mean, anybody whose parents are from West Africa will know that there is a very strong affinity for your know, professional occupations. And when I was about 14, my mum was kind of lamenting the fact that none of... We have, I have um, two brothers and a sister. And she was lamenting the fact that none of my father's children were going to go into medicine. All of us were more artsy-based, if you like, and I I would say foolishly, but you're not foolish when you're 14 or 15. But I foolishly decided to go down the science route. So I took kind of science-based O levels, as they were then, and went on to do science-based A levels. I wasn't very good at science. <laughs> so I actually, I, actually, I actually did get into university, but not to study medicine. I actually went to, to university in Dundee in Scotland, and I went to study zoology that's a that's a leap keith that, that that's a real leap that was the course that I could get into right yeah and i can kind of, i kind of wanted to go to university so i went to, to Dundee University in nineteen seventy to study zoology and um I can't claim that I was passionate about about zoology. <laughs> what happened was and this is just how so many times things just happened to me and fell right for me. In my first term at university, the guy who was the social secretary, they called the entertainment convener in Dundee, but the guy who was the social secretary, he got sacked by the students' union. There were issues to do with um, honesty. (laughs) (laughs) And basically they sacked him. And so the, the student union, needed somebody to take over the entertainment. And for some reason, I don't know why, I, I had been talking to people my first week, I was obviously very keen on music, I was going to shows and you know, gigs and stuff at the time. You know, I remember going to see lots of rock bands. And so halfway through my first term, you know, some of the people who'd been on the student union committee had seen me going to all these shows, I was turning up to every kind of music show going. Because in those days, you know, the college circuit was the big circuit for for all bands. So one of the guys there said to me, listen, have you thought about becoming entertainment convener for the university? I didn't even know what it was, but it sounded good. So I I basically agreed to do that. So I became the entertainment convener for Dundee University Students Association in my first term. So that then made me the person who was responsible for putting on all the shows. In those days, the college circuit was the big circuit. So there were some, I mean, bands will mean nothing to people now. But people of a certain age would recognize some of the bands that I, I put on then. So who were they, Keith? Who were they? There's a band called Yes, there's a band called Wishbone Ash, Super Tramp, uh, Thin Lizzy. Uh, you know, they're all kind of, you know, mainly rock and pop bands. I put on the members of the Average White Band, but in different groups. They weren't, they weren't the Average White Band then. There's a couple of the guys who were in a band called Mogul Thrash. <laughs> Great name. <laughs> that is a wonderful name. And, yeah, and Hamish Stewart, who was the lead singer for the Average White Band, he was in uh, a band called the Berserk Crocodiles. That's probably an even better name. <laughs> Yeah, but I, said, I bumped into him quite a, a while ago now, because at one point he was singing with Paul McCartney.
0: Yeah, I remember seeing him. And I,
1: I and I went to one of uh, Paul McCartney's things, and, and Hamish was there. And I said to him, I, I put I put you on in a, in a group in Scotland, and he was, you know, rightly kind of skeptical. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yeah, I said it was a band called the Berserk Crocodiles, and he said, wow. Yeah, you must have. <laughs> Nobody said of that band. <laughs> yeah. What's really
0: interesting was at the top you talked about entering the music business because you didn't make the grades as a musician. So what did you play How and, and how does that story affect your entry into the music business?
1: started to try and teach myself to play guitar, you know, which I did to a, a greater or less extent. And then I, I was in groups at school and, you know, that kind of stuff, that that route. You know, but the group, those kind of groups were never really going anywhere, but, they, you know, it, it sort of got you into the, the idea of playing in a group. When I started university, because I was doing this social, this entertainment convener thing, some of my old school friends were in a, a more serious group, right? Because they could really play. Because I now had some contacts because I'd been booking these gigs. They wanted to know if I was interested in managing them. Well, since I knew that all of them were much better musicians than I ever was, and this was going to give me an opportunity to stay involved, I was very happy to say, yes, of course i would be your manager. I didn't even know what a manager was, but I knew that it allowed me to be close to the music. Yeah. So I started managing these guys in their group. The group didn't make it, unfortunately. I'm, I'm sure that the fact the manager hadn't got a clue what he was doing had nothing to do with it, right? <laughs> no, I, that's never your fault, Keith. Absolutely yeah, not. Okay. Well, yeah, but anyway, <laughs> the group didn't make it. Furthest we ever got was we got two John Peel sessions. And, and even that, to be perfectly honest, I started to doubt. But then after John Peel died, Somebody did a book of all the John Peel sessions, and there we are and um, well, what was the name of the band? The band was called Peaches
0: yeah again, i'll be searching for the Peaches after i get after I get off this uh, call with you
1: you you will not <laughs> find anything but but if you if you look in that book of, of peel sessions you'll you will see the name so so what happened then was that the idea as a as a manager then was to try and get them a record deal, so I was going around all the record companies seeing the a and r departments and playing them things and you know, and a few people showed interest and came to see them, but nobody was actually biting. As so often happens when that, when you're working with a band and you're put in that position, eventually the band started to disintegrate. They started to uh, accuse each other of being the weak link. <laughs> yeah. Starting to kicking out band members and that kind of stuff. So basically it all fell apart. I really was at this point going to have to get a job because I actually dropped out of university to manage this group. And had you moved to London at this point and you you were, or you still up in Dundee? When I dropped out of university, I moved further south. The band, interestingly enough, and uh, the, what's the program called? There's a, there's a television program on at the moment. Um, and I'm trying to think what it's called. It's a big sort of BBC, I think it's a BBC thing. It, and, and it's basically filmed at a, a stately home called Castle Howard up in Yorkshire, right. And It's a very big stately home. It's like I don't know if you if you've come across Blenheim Palace.
0: Yes, I I, yeah, I know I know the I don't know the particular stately home you're talking about. I'm just trying to think of which one which one it is. But yeah, I'm I'm very familiar with that.
1: Well, basically, the keyboard player from the band was called Nick Howard, and his parents owned Castle Howard. So we we actually lived in a farm on Castle Howard Estate, you know, as a band. So that, that was kind of you know, where where I sort of decamped to. And then we eventually moved down to London, realising that you know you had to be in London if you're gonna have any kind of a chance. So we moved down to London, the band fell apart, like I say, eventually. And I realised I was gonna to have to get a job. My parents were, were in Africa. Uh, they didn't even know they'd left uni, I don't think. I decided I should try and get a, a proper job in the music business. So I answered a, a job advertisement in Music Week, which is a music business trade paper. And I'd seen an advertisement for a Southern Region promotion manager for Transatlantic Records. So I answered the job ad and went along for an interview. And the guy that interviewed me, a guy called Martin Lewis, who's still around, he, you know, it was a fairly typical, I suppose, music business interview for the day. Because I went in and said, what you know, what have you done? I said, well, I've been many friends of mine in the group. Who do you know? <laughs> and I mentioned a couple of people I, I knew, right? And one or two of the people said, oh, I, I know them. Yes, okay. Well, I'll, I'll have a quick word with them and find out a bit about it. I don't know what they ever did. Yeah. You know? uh, but anyway, so I ended up with this job. And the job was to do regional radio promotions. It was the very early stages of commercial radio in the UK. At that point, um, Capital Radio and LBC were the first two commercial stations. LBC was the talk station. Capital Radio was also a talk station in London. So we're talking, that was 1973, I think, they came on the air. right? And I started Transatlantic Records. I think, I, I get confused here. I was 74 or 75. 75 it must have been. I started Transatlantic Records. So a commercial radio was really in its infancy, and my job was to drive around all the radio stations in the southern region, both commercial and BBC stations, and try to get the records played for Transatlantic. Now, Transatlantic as a company did mainly English folk music, or well, actually British folk music. One all English. There is a lot of Scottish and Welsh, and um, you know Irish acts, but it was, it was you know, the proper traditional folk music. You know, the woolen jumper, finger in the ear. Yeah, that yeah, proper folk music mainly, and they also distributed some other interesting labels um, like uh, the Milestone Jazz label and stuff like that. So I was carrying these records as well and trying to get airplay, obviously in the specialist shows. So yeah, the the jazz program, I'd be t- taking his milestone stuff, and and uh, the folk program, I'd, I'd be taking all the folk stuff to the folk program, and I did that probably about. Two months in, well, I started on the same day as another guy who's doing, who doing north and I was doing south. And there was already a guy doing the Midlands. So about probably no more than six weeks after I started, I got a call saying, can you go up to Newcastle and pick up the car from Rob Murphy, his name was, who was the guy who's doing the north. I said, well, what's happened? Oh, he's resigned. You know, he, you know he's, got, he's got a job at Chrysalis Records. <laughs> so we needed to bring his car back. So I went and got his car and, and broke. I said, listen, um, now that Rob has resigned. So do you think you could cover the North and the South? So all of a sudden I'm kind of I'm driving, you know, I'm covering stations between Plymouth and Edinburgh. Shortly after that, The guy that did the Midlands resigned as well. So so they asked me if I could do the North, the Midlands and the South.
0: So basically you were doing all of the UK, is what you're saying. They gave you the the United Kingdom to, to, to plug to.
1: Exactly. What happened was that we're talking early 70s. Transatlantic was a relatively poor record company. They, at the time when I joined the company, they'd only ever had... One top twenty hit single. Can you remember what that was? Yeah, it was a song called "Light Flight" by Pentangle. It was a theme from a television program from the sixties called "Take Three Girls." So that was the only hit that Transatlantic had had then, right? While I was while I was working for Transatlantic, we had another hit, and the other hit that we had was called "The Rochdale Cowboy" by Mike Harding. And that was my first plugging success. That was my first ever trip to Top of the Pops because we had a we had a pop hit record. So I did that job for about uh, eighteen months, and then I had a disagreement with the general manager of the of the company because there was a record that I was working on, which the trade paper at the time was called Needle Time. It then then changed its name to Radio and Record News. This was in in the late seventies, and it was the first. Um, trade paper to try to log what was getting played on UK radio, commercial radio. Because, you know, there weren't that many commercial stations. So they started to kind of follow airplay across the UK. And I was working on an album by a girl called May McKenna. And basically, because I was going to the folk shows, which was a, a specialist programme, all the commercial stations then had that kind of specialist programming. And I was getting the record played on the folk shows and Needle Time or Radio Record News, they had um, in their chart, they had Mae McKenna's record as the most played record in the country because it was getting played on the folk show on all those stations, right? So I mean, the fact that the folk show is on three o'clock in the morning and people were hearing the record. So basically the record was down in Needle Time as being the most played record in the country. And the general manager of of Transatlantic sent me a a memo which said, Keith, the press office are doing a fantastic job on this May McKenna record. They've got this one-column-inch review in Melody Maker. (laughs) What are you doing? And I'm thinking, what do you mean, what am I doing? I've got the number one most played record in the country. So I, you know, the impetuosity of youth, I like to call it, (laughs) (laughs) and we've heard lots of stories about that yeah so I sent a memo back saying dear Jack this is what I'm doing you know with a a big blow up of this number one most paid record and I've gone to photocopy it and blown it up to A3 dear Jack this is what I'm doing and I think this is not bad to consider if you pay peanuts you get monkeys because I I actually wasn't getting paid pretty much either for for all these miles I was driving so anyway as you can imagine, there was a, a brief pause, and I was then called to his office, and we, we had a discussion uh, concerning my future. And you know, I, I guess, uh, I guess we mutually decided it probably it was best if I didn't work there anymore. <laughs> so, so I can, I walked to the nearest record company, and for those who know London, Transatlantic Records was at eighty-six Malbone High Street, right. The nearest record company was EMI Licensed Label Division, which was at number one Thayer Street. And Marleybone High Street becomes Thayer Street, right? It was literally 100 yards down the road. So I walked into the Licensed Label Division and said, I'm looking for a job. And the girl on the reception said, So what do you do? I said, well, I do radio promotions. And she said, Well, what have you done recently? And I, this is still at reception. I had my big A three blow up of my uh, May McKenna number one <laughs> exactly. record. So so <laughs> exactly, yeah, so I did this. She said, "Oh, well, I'll see if the general manager wants to see you." So you know, a few minutes later, she said, "Yeah," he said, "He'll, he'll see you." Now and again, this is a a really amazing piece of good fortune. The general manager of EMI uh, Licensed Label Division at the time was a guy called John Cooper. And John had worked at Transatlantic Records. <laughs> Years before, I, didn't, I didn't know that. right? But anyway, so I, I went and said, I said oh, look, um, the guy that's doing promotions for Motown, which was one of their licensed labels, is, is about to leave. Would you be interested in taking over to doing promotions for Motown? So I said, <laughs> you're obviously going to have to force me. <laughs> you didn't ask
0: about the salary at that point, did you? No, you I, have... <laughs> I, ask, I did
1: not ask about the salary. The The general manager inside of EMI, uh, who, uh, the guy who's general manager of, of the Motown label, was a guy called Julian Moore. So when this was proposed to me about going to... I went to have, and spoke to Julian, and he said... Yeah, we'd be happy to take a chance on you doing promo. Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to, for you to you know, come and be head of promotions for Motown. So I said, great. Yeah. I went back up to Transatlantic and handed in my notice. So I hadn't actually been sacked. And I had two weeks holiday coming. So I took my two weeks holiday. Oh, and he's, um, Julian said, oh, it's probably best if you go down and see the people from Motown International because they're based in London. They've got an office down. It was actually in Rathbone Place. So if you go down to Rathbone Place and, and see the people from Motown and introduce yourself and tell them that, you know, you're going to be doing promo for Motown. I said, OK. So I went and saw them. Everything was fine. I went away. I came back off my holidays two weeks later, went to EMI to start my job and got called in to the, uh, the general manager's office again. And they said, listen, I'm sorry, but um, you can't actually do the Motown job. I said, what do you mean? You you, you offered it to me before before I went away, right? And it turns out that the people running Motown International had said they didn't want a black person working for Motown. You know, they wanted a white promo person. So I said, well, look, you've given me a job offer and I've handed in my notice. I said, well, look, you can still come and work for the licensed label division. And they put a girl that was already working there on promotions for Motown. And they gave me four other labels to to be promoted person for. Now I'm moving. I'm no longer doing regional radio. I'm now doing national radio. So it's Radio One and Capital are now my primary targets. And I've gone from a small label doing folk music to to pop labels where the, the object of the exercise, the name of the game, is to try and get radio playlists on pop radio. So that's a big jump. And... I was really helped in that jump. And this is, again, the way things fall. You probably remember the summer of 76 was a very Very hot. hot summer, famously hot summer, right? It was decided in the summer of 1976 that wouldn't it be a great idea if there was a cricket match between the pluggers and Radio 1, right? The DJs and producers at Radio 1. And it was arranged by a, a lady who uh, was one of the secretaries at Radio 1, right? because her husband was the groundsman at a cricket club a place called Lye in Surrey. So she could get the pitch. So it was a, arranged that Radio 1 would have this summer cricket match. But when I was at Transatlantic, the person who did ra- uh, national radio, I suppose to was doing regional, the person who, who, was, who was doing national radio was a girl called Marilyn Ford. Well, It would surprise you that that Marilyn didn't actually play cricket. I can't believe that. (laughs) But but she was one of the organisers of the game. So she said, well, look, we have to have a transatlantic person playing in the game because I organised the game. So will you play for transatlantic in this Radio 1 cricket match? So I said, yeah, of course, yeah. So I joined in this cricket match. And being black... People assumed I was West Indian, which I wasn't. I was supposed to be a fast bowler. I wasn't really very fast, but you know, get into people's heads, <laughs> right? So I played in this radio, this inaugural Radio One cricket match in 1976, and I scored 75, and I took five wickets for about 14 runs or something. <laughs> right, that's amazing. Uh, uh, but the point is, it, it generally terrorised a lot of the producers and DJs at Radio 1 because they thought that some sort of West Indian ringer had come in. <laughs> you know, what, to, straight, to, straight from the test team. Yeah, ex- exactly. So, so what happened was that three months later, I've now left Transatlantic Records and I'm now plugging at Radio 1. So I am now walking in to see these producers who had only ever seen me on the cricket pitch. They didn't know, they had no idea who I was. But it it had been a fantastic introduction because all of a sudden I'm walking in and they go, wait a minute, I know you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You were hitting me with all parts of the crowd. Yeah. So it was was a great, it was a great introduction. I was doing the promo on Elton John's Blue Moves and he had a launch party for the album. And the launch party was held in a club called Monkbury's in German Street. So, I'm at the party at Monkfree's in German Street, and I'm talking away to this this, this woman. You know, there lots of people, it's like it's a launch party, so, you know, there are loads of people that I didn't know. But I'm just chatting, I'm chatting to this woman. And the vice president of Motown International, the guy who I'd seen you know, a few months earlier, <laughs> who decided that he didn't want me working for Motown, came across and he said, um, Oh, uh, I see you've met my wife, Dolly. And I said, "Ah, oh, well, I didn't know it was your wife." And she said, "Oh yes, Ken, what a charming young man." <laughs> and the next day, literally the next day, I got a phone call from Ken East, who was the vice president of Motown International, to say, "I think I've made a mistake. Will you, uh, will you come and work for Motown?" I said, "Yeah." And that just happened to coincide with the launch of another little album called Songs in the Key of Life. And they had a listening party at Abbey Road Studios. Right? So I had to go and take care of you know, the radio DJs and the various media people for the launch party of, of Songs in the Key of Life at Abbey Road Studios That's in 1976. You know, so, so, so now I had Elton John's Blue Moves and Stevie Wonder's Songs in the Key of Life, right? And as a promo person, you just couldn't have a better calling card. So it kind of, it gave me a really good introduction, you know, into that sort of Radio 1 plugin. And I was also doing the club promotions as well. Yeah. Back then, in 1976, 77, every record company had one black employee, right? And in every case, that one black employee disco promotions, right? except for me, because I was at Motown, I was allowed to be the head of promotions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you know, there, there was Erskine Thompson, who I'm sure you remember very well. Of course, yeah. Erskine was Erskine was at Ireland. Fred Duff was at Warner's. Orville Sweeney, I, I don't know if you remember Orville. No, but he yeah, was at, before my time. Orville. He, yeah, exactly. he was at Anchor Records. Um, you know, there, there were. You know, every company had, you know, one black person doing disco promotions. And we obviously,
0: we all knew each other. So let me ask you about that time, because, I, you know, having been a part of that, and it's something that I'll talk about when when I get the chance to at some point, how did those people around you as fellow black professionals, did they provide you with a support system? Was that your kind of, were they the people you you, you talked to, you know? shared experiences with you know moved with during that time. period were you still very much in your own bubble working at Motown doing what you were doing
1: there were no other black people working in Motown so there was no support bubble there but as as young black people and we're all it was all males were there weren't any black women involved at that time we we naturally supported each other because we'd find ourselves in the same clubs at midnight and one o'clock in the morning you know because they were all doing disco promotions. I was doing radio and club promotions for Motown. So we'd see each other a lot and talk a lot. But it wasn't like a support bubble any more than, at that time, black people all supported each other. Yeah. If you saw another black person in the street, you would all say hello. Even if you, you know, even if you didn't know them, you know, you would not walk past a black person without acknowledging their presence. So when you were both in the same business, of course, there was there was a, a feeling of support, even though I don't think any of us took our, our various complaints. And I, I certainly never told anybody my story about what had happened at Motown or any of that kind at, at, you know, at that time. And, you know, we were just basically getting on with the work. So um but let's say but it was comforting to know we all knew each other. Yeah. You know, and we had a kind of a friendly rivalry. Let's put it that way. So what made you make that move to Los Angeles? Well, 1977, uh, October 1977. I remember it very well. I was actually on tour with Smokey Robinson, and we were in Manchester, and I got a phone call in reception because you know there's no mobile phones in those days. Somebody called the the main desk at at uh, whatever the theatre it was. I think it's now called the Apollo, but it's called something else then. Um, and I had to go, I went to the phone, and it was the general manager of the Motown label. And he was saying to me, You need to come back down to London tonight. And I said, well, well, what? You know, Smokey's just done sound check. He's got a gig tonight. I'm supposed to be at the gig. So, no, no, look, forget about that. You've got to come to London. I'm going, well, why? You know? <laughs> so, so he said, well, Stevie Wonder's coming into London, right? He's coming in tonight and he wants to go out somewhere and we don't know where to take him. Because, of course, I was the club man. <laughs> so will you come back? Well, not will you. Come back. You'll come back, yeah. Yeah, and take him out. And, of course, you know, I was thrilled because, you know, Stevie was arguably the biggest artist in the world at the time. I was a huge fan already. I mean, even before I joined Motown, I I mean, really from the Talking Book album onwards, because I bought Talking Book while I was at uni and listened to it till it wore out, right? And so I was a huge Stevie Wonder fan. So, you know, I was really quite excited. And so I drove back down to London and I met him at a club, which I'm sure you will remember well, because I think you're probably old enough to remember, Gulliver's. I uh, yeah, I, I know it very, very, very well and
0: spent many, many happy night
1: in there. Let me yeah, tell you. So, so yeah. It was, it, it was when it was in Down Street, before it moved before it moved up to Carnaby Street area. And it was in Down Street to Mayfair. So I met him there and we, we spent the next three days in London. Because what had happened was that Yolanda, who was Stevie's partner at the time, was very big into fashion. She's the, the mother of Aisha, of Isn't She Lovely fame, right? And Yolanda was very... Heavily into fashion. And so Stevie, as a birthday present for her, I decided to take her to Paris to see some fashion. So they flew in at the end of October to go and look at the fashion in Paris. But unfortunately, what he hadn't realised was that it was um, a public holiday in France. And so all the shops were closed. So he decided to, to detour into London. So he came into London. So I spent three or four days looking after him in London, right? And we just got on very well because you can imagine two guys roughly the same age, right? Both black from different backgrounds, but we had the same outlook. So we got on very well. So when he went back to LA, we kept in touch. He was calling me up and saying, hey, man, you can come work for me, right? And I was kind of, that's a big jump, you know? The only family I have were were in London. My parents were were in Africa to suddenly go to L.A., which was a long way away in 1978, I can tell you. Um, It was a a massive jump. But then again, and this shows you, I, I got sort of pushed into it because I got called in to the managing director's office at EMI Licensed Label Division one day, just out of the blue. And he called me and he said... Alan Fitter, who was who was the general manager of, of Motown in, in London at the time, said, Alan Fitter is leaving. Uh, he's handing his notice. He's leaving in a month. And it might seem to a lot of people that you'd be an obvious choice to take over the job. But I'm calling you in to tell you that I'm not going to give it to you, so don't bother to apply. And I was going, really? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, and as I was on my way out the door as a kind of an afterthought, he we said, we're going to get somebody with more experience. So I thought, okay, well, not much I could say about that because I, I wasn't the most experienced. I'd only been there for a year and a half, maybe two years. Year. So, yeah, what can I say? So about a month later, he called me in again and he said, um, well, you, you, as you know, uh, Alan Fitcher's left and we haven't found anybody yet. So... Um, will you take over and do the general manager's job? You yeah. know, and we're going to continue to kind of look around. So I took over, became the general manager of the label and ran the label for um, about four months. They then called me in again and said, we found uh, a man, David Hughes is going to take over as the general manager of Motown. But, um, you know, he did not know too much about marketing and some of the other areas of, of what you have to do. So, would you look over his shoulder and kind of help him out. When you when you get told that they're bringing in a white person who's less experienced than you to do the job, which they told you that you couldn't do because you weren't experienced enough, you know, the writing is on the wall. So I called Stevie and I said, listen, is that job still going? He said, yeah, come on. So I did. So I moved to LA.
0: When you landed then and you met up with Stevie, what transpired from
1: that point going forward? I mean, how did how did it work? It became fairly clear to me fairly quickly. that Steve, he wasn't actually sure exactly what he wanted me to do, but he just kind of you kind of wanted me to be on his team. You know, so I was out in LA, and I was kind of looking for work, if you know what I mean. I was, there were things that I I thought that I could get, I could be useful for. And, and particularly, what, what I was useful for, because I'd worked at Motown in the UK, I knew quite a few of the people who worked in the Motown office in LA. There'd been a, a Motown International Conference where I'd met some of the, the you know, I met the president of Motown, the guy called Barney Ailis, and I met Mike Lushka, who was the, the, the kind of the head of sales. And so I'd met all these Motown people in London before. So when I got out to LA, I knew and recognized some of the people because Motown at the time, it had moved from Detroit to LA, but it still had that Motown family thing. So all the artists, as well as having their own offices outside, also had an office in the Motown building at 6255 Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. And so basically Stevie's office was on the 17th floor of 6255 Sunset. So I spent a lot of time in the Motown building and you know, kind of meeting the people in Motown, and, and Stevie, his, his current album, "Songs That Give Life," was like two years ago, and he was working on a movie soundtrack called uh, called Stevie Wonder's Journey Through the Secret Life of Plants, right? So he was working on that on that movie soundtrack, and there was a lot of stuff a lot of anticipation, obviously, in Motown because it was going to be Stevie Wonder record. I mean, it turned out not to be the record that they thought they were getting. But obviously, you know, there's a lot of anticipation. And I knew that when the record came, there was going to be a lot of coordination to do between Stevie's team and the Motown team. So I, I spent a lot of time in the building learning who did what in Motown and, you know, who we were going to have to liaise with to get the record out and all that kind of stuff. And also, I was driving Stevie down to the studio every day because he was working in a studio in Orange County called Irvine Studios. Uh, no, IAM Studios. It was in Irvine, in California. Um, and so I was driving around to the studio, and I was just generally making myself busy, right? And so I basically um, just set myself to work, and it was it was a. Um, uh, It was a very interesting time, obviously, because I'd never really been in America and I wasn't used to the whole idea of the Hollywood scene. One of my favourite stories that I tell, which loads of people have heard me speak before will have heard me tell this story. But I remember driving Stevie uh, around and I'd been there for a little while, so I'd got a little bit more comfortable with the idea of driving Stevie Wonder because in the early stages, I was terrified. Yeah, you know, I'm driving on the wrong side of the road in a, in a city I don't know at all with, you know, this blind artist who happens to be the most famous artist in the world at the time, you know. And a lot of the time, it's just me and him in the car. Right? So so now I've got a bit more comfortable with that situation and I'm driving him, but I suddenly realised that the car is going to run out of petrol. The light, the light has come on. So i Steve, listen, um, I'm gonna to have to stop. Because before that, I was always making I always made sure the car was full and you know, but I'd now relaxed, right? So I'm saying, I'm gonna to have to stop, because I need to fill it up. So that's cool. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, you think it's cool because you can't see where we are, right? We we're, we're, <laughs> we're, were right in the middle of the sunset strip, right? You know, it was pretty busy and, and was a, a pretty wild place then, because this was late 70s and it was still. You know, L.A. hadn't been cleaned up. It got cleaned up for the Olympics in, in 84. But it was still, you know, a pretty, Hollywood was... Wild. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, anyway, I pull over to the petrol station, fill the car up, and I'm walking back to the car having filled it up. And I see this black guy's going to get in on the driving side. He's going to, about to open the driver's side door. So I, should, I say, hey, hey, what are you doing? And he he says, oh, oh, I was just going to say hi to Stevie, man. I said, well, you can't just get in the car. You Wait there. So I make him him stand to the side, and I'm kind of holding the car door to make sure that, you know, he doesn't try and jump in or anything. So I said, Stevie, Stevie, someone wants to say hi to you. He said, that's all right. Okay. So I said, okay, come on, you you can come and say hello. So I'm holding the car door, you know, just making sure the guy doesn't try to jump inside. (laughs) So he just kind of pokes his head to the little crack in the door and says, Stevie, how are you doing? He says, Herbie, how are you? It was Herbie Hancock. <laughs> <laughs> but I, did, I didn't know. <laughs> I mean, to me at that time, Herbie Hancock was just the name on a record sleeve. You know what I mean? Um, in so, fairness,
0: you wouldn't have expected Herbie Hancock, one of the world's greatest jazz keyboardists, to be
1: hanging around the Boulevard
0: at that time of the day,
1: Right. Absolutely, you know, and and um, you know it, it was a it was a big learning experience because all of a sudden you, you suddenly realise that that these are real people. It was like being in a sweetie shop, you know, because all these people were names that I'd known and I, I didn't know what they looked like, but they were all people who whose music I admired and known, and, and of course Stevie was a magnet for these people. You know, that time you know anybody who was anybody in black music, you know, seemed to come within the Stevie Wonder realm, you know. And so for me, it was, just, it was just the most amazing time, you know, in terms of meeting those people, but also in terms of being able to be in that Motown office and see how things worked, you know, on the black music scene in America. Because, of course, I had no prior experience of that. The whole idea of having a record company where 90% of their employees were black, Right, and fifty percent of the employees were women. You know, Motown had more women in senior positions than every any record company I have ever been in, even to this day. Right, which which was just remarkable. You know, so it was just a a complete culture shock and a, a complete transformation from anything that I'd known before. Gradually, I found a role. And my role was at the time Stevie had a kind of he had two kind of key people on the management team. One was a guy called Jurt Abner, who was a former president of Motown. And the other was a guy called Johannan Vigoda, who was Stevie's lawyer, who had t- done his deal when he turned 21, and then again when he just before Sons of the key Life came out. So these were like his his two key and They they were older guys, they were in their in their fifties or sixties at the time, right? Um, and I then became almost the third person in the kind of triumvirate who's nearest Stevie's age. You know, we'd talk things over, and I'd give him my opinion, and you know, so I was attending a lot of these kind of the meetings, you know, and hearing what was going on, and telling Steve what I thought, and you know, so I ended up in, in this. Well, my, my title then became operations manager, right, because I was like. The center of the, of the hub, if you like, of all the things that were going on. So it was a, it was, it was a fantastic learning experience. I learned a lot. I traveled a lot <laughs> because we, we did a couple of world tours in that time. Um, but also, I traveled a lot around America. I learned a lot about America and the DJs. And, and of course, the thing was, Black Music Society in America then was also relatively small. So they were just establishing the American Black Music Association. So they had uh, people like sort of Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff, and a guy called LeBaron Taylor, who was the boss of, of, of CBS Black Music Division, and Larkin Arnold, and all these kind of um, top black music executives. Um, and you know, I, I just had a seat at the table with all these people who were vastly more experienced than I was. And and it was just great to be able to be there and sit and listen and learn and soak it all up, you know? And, um, yes, I, I, I was just very privileged and I learned a lot in a very short space of time because I had to.
0: Thinking about a possible return to the UK, what were the primary lessons you took away from your time at, mo- at working with Stevie at Motown?
1: I actually learned a lot from working with Stevie, but, but, when i came back to the uk i hadn't planned yeah what happened was that i'd been with stevie for two and a half three years and i was working between 16 and 24 hours a day yeah and i was i was i was very tired but but i yeah i'd been working very hard and i realized because as time went on, I was, I was actually getting more and more central, if you like, to Stevie's organisation. I, I was doing more and more things, everything from getting his car service to signing cheques, right? And I realised that either I was going to commit the rest of my life to working for Stevie Wonder, or I was going to leave and try and do something for myself, right? And I chose the latter, Right. so I said, I said to Steve, "Look, I'm going to leave at Christmas. Right, I'm going to go back to back to London." And I don't think he really believed it. You know, because we kind of talked about it from time to time, but then it wasn't really discussed. And then about two weeks before Christmas, I was saying, "You know, I'm leaving in two weeks, right?" <laughs> <laughs> And you know, so then in the end, you know, he realised that that I was serious, and so you know, I I hadn't made a plan. I thought it was disrespectful to to start looking for other work when he hadn't really acknowledged that I was going. So, you know, what I what I learned, I think, there was I mean, I learned a lot. Obviously, you couldn't mix with the people that I got to mix with, without learning a phenomenal amount. I, but I also developed a lot of contacts then. yeah, I think probably the biggest thing that I learned in my time with Stevie was anything is possible. You have to get things done, right? I think when I started, I probably had much more of an attitude of, oh, no, you know, that can't be done. That's not possible. Right? But by the time I left whatever it was, there there has to be a way, was was much more my attitude. But I particularly remember um, one day, because Stevie and I lived in the same apartmental hotel. I remember him calling me up one day and saying, listen, I've got this great idea. I said, what's the idea? He said, I think that we should pick up Congressman John Conyers' idea of trying to make Martin Luther King's birthday into a national holiday. And I said, yeah, that's that's a really good idea. He said, okay, right. I want you to organize it. <laughs> 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 Whoa. <laughs> you know, but the point is, you know, when I'd started, I'd be saying, well, I, I can't do that. That's, But then, you know, you think, well, okay, yeah, there has to be a way. So, you know, so I kind of set myself to thinking about well, what's the best way we can kind of go about doing this? Because Stevie had said he wanted to have this March on Washington, like Martin the King's original March on Washington. That was all his idea. And then I had to think, well, how are we going to do that? How are we going to get people on side and make it happen? Yeah. So, you know, that was certainly that was one of my um, kind of standout moments, if you like, from my time out there. But, but there's more the fact of, of, of realising that you actually can make things happen.
0: I'm Adrian Sykes, and this was a Did You Know Pioneers, a Downstreet production. Thank you for listening. Thanks to Keith for sharing his story. We've barely even scratched the surface. Tune in to hear part two on Friday, June the 18th. Our thanks as ever to Danny D, partner and true pioneer, Sean Springer, our producer Cass Denton, and Ruby on the socials and Vega Brothers for our theme music. Also, big thanks to Dave Roberts and Tim Ingham at MBW and to Evie, Ren, and David and all the team at WX. You'll soon be able to apply to be mentored by the guests of the Did You Know Pioneers podcast. Details coming very soon. Did You Know is available wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure that you subscribe to never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. This was Did You Know Pioneers. Until
1: the next time.